Welcome back for our second lecture on South Asia. In this lecture, we're going to take a look at the population and settlement geography, as well as the cultural geography of the region. So I have the population uh, density map uh, up on the slide, and uh, hopefully you can uh, pick out some distinct patterns where the population is uh, uh, very dense and other places where it's not so dense. Uh, and uh, hopefully you can see that we have very dense populations in the Ganges River Valley, and then of course also in the Brahmaputra River Valley, and obviously in Bangladesh where the two rivers come together to form the delta that we had talked about in the previous lecture. We also have uh, fairly dense populations in the Indus River Valley. So these are really the areas of the most dense population in this region, and actually uh, these river valleys support over half the uh, region's population. Uh, you can see there's some other uh, pockets of dense population, particularly around our larger cities as, such as Mumbai, uh, Delhi, uh, Calcutta, and so forth. Uh, Delhi's right up in this area. Uh, and then, of course, down in Sri Lanka around Colombo as well, the capital of Sri Lanka. Uh, so, uh, talking about the population geography of this region, um, as I mentioned earlier, South Asia will soon surpass East Asia as the world's most populous region. Um, the good news in this region is fertility levels have, have started to decline and have been declining for uh, a, a few years now. But population continues to grow very rapidly throughout much of the region. And that's uh, uh, a holdover from the very young population in the area. Uh, the decline in fertility levels show distinct geographical patterns. Most of southern and eastern India, along with Sri Lanka, uh, should witness population stabilization uh, relatively soon. Uh, however, uh, there's uh, stabilization in the northern regions will continue to increase. And so some of the real patterns that we can observe is obviously in the urban areas, fertility levels are much lower. But when you get into the more rural areas where people make their living doing agriculture, uh, fertility levels remain persistently high, unfortunately. Um, and we'll take a look at the data in the next chart and uh, the next slide that has the population uh, data on it. Um, in India, there's been widespread concern over, over uh, population growth since the 1960s. There's an introduction of family planning programs. Uh, the total fertility rate dropped, and this is related to increase in women's education and family planning. Uh, however, there's an ongoing problem uh, of preference for sons and sex-selective uh, abortions continues to happen even though it's illegal. So much like we saw in East Asia, uh, in South Asia and several of the countries, in, in, uh, 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 there's a real preference for sons, once again, to carry on the family name. Uh, also for sons to, uh, because sons are able to uh, uh, do work in the fields and so forth, although women also do work in the fields. But women, uh, men are thought to be more productive. And of course, it's the old age uh, security uh, concept as well. Uh, parents want to have sons uh, so that they can uh, support the uh, parents in, the old age, in their old age. Uh, uh, female children, on the other hand, will go off, leave the family, and, and marry and, and, marry and uh, will not be available to support their parents in, in the older age. And actually, that's a real problem in, uh, in many parts of this region, particularly the more traditional areas. Uh, women tend to be married off very young. Uh, the marriages are arranged by their parents. Uh, and they tend to, uh, in, particularly in the rural areas and the traditional areas, they tend to be married off at a very young age, sometimes as young as 14 years, uh, 14 years old. And they very often end up marrying uh, men that are much older than, than themselves. And when they are married off, the, uh, the, uh, the woman's family actually has to pay a dowry to the, uh, to the uh, groom's family uh, to take the bride, I guess, so to speak. Uh, because, uh, and so, uh, so female children are really viewed as an uh, as a economic uh, uh, liability uh, to families. And so that's another reason that we see sex-select abortions. Uh, because the parents have to provide a, a dowry for the bride when she goes off to uh, get married. Also, um, the bride will go live with the, uh, with the groom's family. And in, particularly in the more rural areas, 
not only is she a wife, but she's also essentially becomes a slave in many cases and is forced uh, to do housework, work in the fields, and so forth. I mean, uh, that's really the reason they get married is uh, why the uh, groom takes a wife is to essentially almost become a slave in some of the more rural areas of, the, uh, of this region. However, uh, in the more urban areas, uh, that's not necessarily the case. In some cases, they still have to provide a dowry, um, but women have uh, somewhat better opportunities than they do in the rural areas, uh, better access to education and things like that. Although many women do not receive um, education in this region. Um, you know, they think it's imp more important to get married and have children. In Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, the government exhi ex exhibits uh, ambivalent attitude towards family planning. Official position is that the birth rate is excessive, but only recently moved to lower, to lower the overall rate. Uh, Bangladesh has made significant strides in reducing birth rates through family planning. Uh, however, Pakistan uh, birth rates remain uh, very high. So we've taken a look at the uh, population geography. We've uh, pointed out where uh, most of the people live and the patterns of uh, population settlement. So let's take a look at some of the data. So as we know, uh, India has a population of about 1.2 billion people. It will soon overtake uh, China as the world's uh, most populous country. Uh, you can see uh, Pakistan has a population of about one, or I'm sorry, of 184, about 185 million people, and Bangladesh about 165 million people, and all three of these countries rank in the top 10 as far as population uh, is concerned uh, in the world. Uh, looking at the population densities, you can see that India, for example, has a population density of 362 people per square kilometer. Now, that is higher than what we have in the United States, but also that's uh, geographically variable, as we saw from the map. So in the Ganges River Valley, for example, the population density would be much higher. Bangladesh, you see, has a very high population density of about uh, 1,142 people per square mile. And once again, you need to uh, consider that in the uh, Delta area, in the Ganges Delta area, that population density is going to be uh, is going to be even higher than this figure shows. The Maldives, as you might expect, because it has it's such a small land area, uh, and it also has only three hundred thousand people, but it's such a small land area that its population density is is high as well. Uh, Pakistan about 232 people per square mile, but much of that population is concentrated in the Indus River Valley. Okay, let's take a look at the rates of natural increase. So you can see Bangladesh, 1.5% uh, uh, per year rate of natural increase. Uh, the highest in the, in the region is uh, Pakistan with 2.3% uh, rate of natural increase in a year. And so if you would do the uh, doubling time of these countries, um, just off the top of my head, uh, the population in Pakistan would uh, double in probably about somewhere between 25 and 30 years. In um, Bangladesh, that would probably be somewhere around 40 to 45 years, I suspect. Okay, and in India, probably about the same. So, uh, you know, in your lifetime, you know, I mean, you need to think about this in your lifetime. Um, what will Bangladesh look like with almost 300 million people? What if the trends remain the same? Of course, uh, and that's <clears throat> and there's no guarantee that they will remain the same. But if they do remain the same, uh, think about what these countries will look like uh, when their populations double within your lifetime. Well, we're talking about countries that have a difficult time providing jobs and food for their populations as it is. Uh, what will they be like? Uh, you know, in you know 30, 40 years. Now let's take a look at the uh, total fertility rates. And these total fertility rates have declined uh, uh, pretty significantly over the last couple decades. Um, so that's the good sign. Um, but uh, they're still pretty high. So total fertility rates, every country is, re uh, is uh, much above replacement level, as you can see, uh, with Pakistan having a to total fertility rate of four. 
Uh, this area really is very urban. Uh, overall, probably 75% of the population, I'm sorry, very rural. Uh, probably overall, uh, probably somewhere between 70 and 75% of the total population lives in rural areas. But this is changing very quickly uh, as we see very rapid rural to urban migration. Uh, and so we'll talk about that uh, in a few minutes. So you can see uh, most of the population in Bangladesh lives in rural areas. Only about 25% live in uh, urban areas. Bhutan, about 32%. Um, India, we have about 30% living in urban areas. Uh, and it, it's actually interesting because India actually has some of the world's largest cities with Mumbai, Calcutta, Delhi, and so forth. But still, um, the, most of the population lives in rural areas. Uh, similar situation in Pakistan, only about 35% live in urban areas. So a very rural population. But And you can also see we have a very young population in this region, which means that population growth is going to probably continue for the next several decades as this uh, percent under 15 population comes into its reproductive years. And of course, they'll want to have children. And even if they reduce their fertility, uh, because we have such a large number of, of people coming into the reproductive years, that means population is going to continue to grow um, pretty rapidly uh, in this region for the next couple decades. Uh, and but as you can see, we also have a rel uh, we we don't have a very high proportion of our population over 65. Uh, matter of fact, we have very low proportion over 65. Then if we take a look at our net migration rates, you can see most of the countries here uh, have more people leaving, uh, which is indicated by the negative net migration rate, uh, than coming to these countries. Um, and that kind of makes sense as people leave the region to seek opportunities in other places. And we'll take a closer look at migration in this region uh, in a few minutes as well. Uh, Bhutan, on the other hand, has a positive uh, net migration rate, which indicates more people are moving into the area than leaving. Uh, so as we talked about, uh, we have rapid population growth, as you can see. There are different approaches to family planning. India and Bangladesh have uh, strong family, family planning programs, whereas Pakistan is kind of uh, indifferent to family planning. Uh, and that probably uh, uh, has a lot to do with uh, the culture in the region, which uh, encourages, uh, in many cases, encourages uh, um, women not to use family planning methods. So uh, um, uh, as part of the Pathan and uh, Baluchi uh, culture, uh, uh, women uh, often aren't encouraged to use uh, family planning. So you can see in Bangladesh, uh, we have a young girl here talking to uh, women in a village about family planning and a similar situation here in West Bengal. And West Bengal happens to be one of the poorest uh, provinces along with Uttar Pradesh uh, in India. Uh, and so there's a, really a move uh, because we're really concerned about food production in this area, being able to keep up with uh, um, to keep up with the population growth. So far that's uh, been the case. It, uh, food production actually has been able to keep up with the very rapid population growth. Uh, but the fear is we've reached our maximum yields in many areas of this region for our crops. And so uh, in the future, uh, it's a real concern to, uh, about keeping up with um, food production and population growth. Uh, the migration and settlement patterns, uh, as you can see, uh, most, uh, most of the densely settled areas coincide with zones of fertile soils, of course. I've already pointed that out, uh, particularly with uh, in the Ganges River Valley, the Indus River Valley, and some of the other river valleys in the region. Um, the largest rural populations, as I mentioned, are found in the Ganges and Indus River Valleys and coastal plains of India. Settlement is less dense on the Deccan Plateau, as we saw and so forth. Um, north, uh, <clears throat> um, major populations uh, clusters are in the Kathmandu Valley and the, of Nepal and the Valley of Kashmir and northern India up in this area as well. Okay, uh, so I did want to talk about the uh, migration patterns in the region. As you can see, uh, major migration streams are uh, uh, within the region 
uh, are from the central part of the Deccan Plateau to places like Bangalore. Now Bangalore is on what is known as the Silicon Plateau. So this is a lot of areas, This Bangalore is a city where you'll find a lot of uh, high-tech industries. As a matter of fact, it has uh, a lot of the call centers uh, that when we have problems with our electronics, with our uh, laptops, or with our iPods and iPads, iPhones and so forth, and other electronic uh, equipment, when we call for help, very often we'll reach um, uh, somebody uh, who's located in Bangalore or an, in another city on the uh, on the Silicon Plateau. Uh, we also see that people are moving to Mumbai, so very rapid rural to urban migration, and this is causing our cities to grow extremely rapidly. Um, so um, you can see from uh, Bihar province, also one of the poorest provinces in the region, uh, West Bengal is also one of the poorest provinces in the region. These are all agricultural uh, areas. People are leaving these areas to move to the perceived opportunities that they find in cities. And I say perceived opportunities because many times when they uh, come to the cities, they uh, are unable to find uh, employment, and so they're often very uh, disappointed. But in many cases, even though they are, cannot find employment, um, or at least they find uh, informal employment, or in some cases they find, um, you know, part-time employment. Uh, their lives are, uh, in many cases, better off than they are in the rural areas where there's really no opportunities at all, except for the drudgery of, of farm life. Okay, so you can see we have uh, people moving from Bangladesh and into, uh, this is actually part of India here moving into this part of India, and, uh, and also uh, spilling into Bhutan as well. And you can also see that uh, we'll talk more about Jammu and Kashmir and the migration pattern out of there. Uh, Jammu and Kashmir are really disputed territories, const contested territories between India and Pakistan. And the, and the constant fighting in this area is causing people to leave. And they're moving into the Punjab area and into Delhi, as you can see. As well, and then we have people leaving um, parts of Pakistan to move into uh, the major city of Karachi, the port city here, and we'll talk a little bit more about that because that's creating some real ethnic tensions in Karachi, and very uh, because we have different ethnic groups that are mixing in Karachi, uh, and they tend to um, uh, uh, very often we'll see uh, fighting occurring between these different ethnic groups in Karachi. And then this pattern of uh, Pakistan into Afghanistan, I suspect, is probably the refugees that have uh, concentrated along the border uh, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. The Afghan refugees that have concentrated uh, along the border are people moving back uh, into Afghanistan. And actually, now that I look at the legend here, that's exactly what the legend says. So uh, refugees moving back uh, from the camps and so forth in this, uh, uh, back into Afghanistan. Now, it says, world to urban migration changes in agriculture. And I'll talk more about the Green Revolution technologies uh, in the upcoming, in upcoming slides. But really, that is ca uh, causing a lot of the world to urban migration. As more and more farmers uh, take, uh, uh, make use of Green Revolution technologies, that has reduced the need for agricultural labor in the rural areas. And so many of these uh, ag uh, peasant farmers uh, find themselves uh, without work in the rural areas. And so they migrate to, uh, the, uh, urban, uh, to the urban areas, uh, hoping to find um, wage labor in those areas so that they can support their families. So let's take a look at some of the uh, agricultural regions in this, in this area. So um, historically, this region has been less productive than East Asia when it comes to agriculture. The, cause of this, the causes of this are complex, including the colonial history, the social status of farmers, and land ownership issues. Um, some of the crop zones that we'll take a look at are South Asia's divided into distinct agricultural regions. Rice is grown mostly in the lower Ganges River Valley, 
uh, the lowlands of India's eastern and western coast, and the delta region of Bangladesh, Pakistan's lower Indus River Valley, and Sri Lanka. So those are our rice areas in the region. Wheat is grown mostly in the northern Indus River Valley and the western half of India's Ganges uh, Valley. Um, the Punjab area uh, is uh, known as, as I mentioned before, the region's breadbasket and is located in northwestern India and parts of Pakistan. The Green Revolution has been successful in this region, in particular, increasing, in increasing grain yields. And I'll talk more about that in, uh, in the Green Revolution, as I mentioned, in a few minutes. Uh, millet and sorghum are grown throughout uh, the less fertile areas of central India, um, so mostly in the uh, uh, Deccan Plateau region. And uh, it's also, uh, we also see root crops uh, grown in that region as well. Other crops, some commercially produced, uh, some are commercially produced, and others are for local subsistence. Oil seeds, such as sesame and peanuts, are grown in semi-arid uh, districts. Uh, so around the Thar, uh, Thar River, I'm sorry, the Thar Desert area is where you would find that for the most part. Uh, and probably some in the arid areas of Pakistan as well. Sri Lanka and the Indian state of Kerala produce coconuts, spices, and especially tea. Cotton is widely cultivated in Pakistan. And some of that is uh, used for export, but some of it is also used in the textile mills of, um, of Pakistan and, um, and Bangladesh in particular. Um, so um, cotton is widely cultivated in Pakistan and West Central India. Bangladesh is a ma major producer of jute, which is, a, uh, which is a tough fiber used in the manufacture of rope. And unfortunately for Bangladesh, uh, the demand for jute has actually uh, declined pretty significantly as rope is, uh, is uh, mostly made out of uh, synthetic fibers such as nylon, nylon and things like that uh, now. So let's talk about the Green Revolution a bit. Uh, the Green Revolution is, um, uh, has been, as I mentioned, very successful in, um, in um, increasing uh, food supplies uh, throughout much of the region, uh, but uh, unfortunately it's also created some serious problems. So the Green Revolution is actually uh, techniques that are used, um, um, agricultural techniques using genetically altered seeds. Uh, it also uses irrigation and the heavy use of industrial fertilizers and chemical pesticides. And most of these pesticides, as you know, obviously they're chemicals, uh, but they're mostly uh, petroleum-based. So it's actually interesting that uh, the Green Revolution technologies, it's estimated, uses something like 10% of the world's uh, oil uh, is uh, used in the manufacture of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. And also um, the Green Revolution technologies are highly... Um, mechanized technology, so they use tractors and other farm equipment, and so obviously you need gasoline and things like that to fuel the tractors. So uh, the Green Revolution began in the 1960s in this region uh, with the use of hybrid crops that respond to the inputs that I just mentioned, irrigation, uh, fertilizers, and pesticides. Um, the region actually, uh, this really helped the region move to self-sufficiency self in agriculture. However, there's uh, tremendous ecological problems that uh, have resulted, uh, particularly in the, at, uh, with the heavy use of the chemical pesticides and fertilizer. These, have, um, these uh, chemicals have leached down into the groundwater and, and actually have poisoned the groundwater of many regions uh, in, in many of the wells in this region. So, for example, and then, of course, people use the groundwater uh, from these wells uh, to uh, to drink, and so many people have been poisoned and, and have died from drinking this poisonous water, and the situation has become so bad in Bangladesh that the government actually uh, has gone around and tested um, practically all the wells in the country, and they have marked the wells uh, uh, as to whether or not the water is safe to drink from by uh, painting the wellheads green if the water is safe to drink, 
and they've painted the wellheads red if they're not safe to drink from. Now, since most people live in villages, and these villages depend on these wells, you can imagine the hardship that this creates if your village well has been marked as unsafe to drink from. What that means is um, the women, in most cases, are the ones who collect the water, have to walk to another village, uh, hopefully which is relatively nearby, to collect water to uh, bathe with, to cook with, and so forth. So it creates some real hardships if your well has been um, has been poisoned. So it's been a kind of an ecological disaster in many and many parts of this region. It's also created so, uh, some so, uh, some pretty substantial social problems as well. As I mentioned, many of the peasant farmers have been forced off their land because uh, to make the green revolution technologies, uh, to make the investment in those green revolution revolution technologies profitable, the farmers have to increase the uh, number of acres or the number of hectares that they farm because obviously you're, you have to pay for these inputs and to make the inputs profitable you have to uh, uh, constantly increase the, uh, the land area that you're farming and to be able to do that the rich farmers uh, are constantly increasing the size of their lands and this pushes the small farmers off their land uh, and they no longer have jobs. And of course, with the mechanization, uh, their labor is not required on the, uh, on the uh, larger farms either. So the social problems that have been created, obviously this has created uh, a large amount of uh, rural to urban migration, but also many farmers, because this is the only way of life that they know, have actually committed suicide because they can no longer support their families. Uh, and this has tra uh, been a very tragic situation in India, where it's estimated that some, something like uh, 100,000 farmers have committed suicide in a five-year period. So it's a, been a very devastating, um, very, very devastating in India. And another thing that we have to think about is many of the crops that are grown using Green Revolution technologies are actually grown for export, and they're not grown for the... Uh, domestic market. So what that means is that there's actually become food shortages for the domestic market um, because um, much of the wheat and other crops that are grown are grown for export. Um, so while the Green Revolution, yes, has indeed allowed uh, India and Bangladesh and, 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 and Pakistan to increase its food supply to the level that it's uh, been able to outpace the population growth, it has created some very, very serious problems in these countries. Okay, so let's move on and take a look at our uh, urban landscapes uh, in the region. Uh, urban South Asia, uh, as, I, as we saw from the data, the region is one of the least urbanized, but can contain some of the world's large, largest urban agglomerations. 43 cities in this region have population, populations in excess of 1 million people. Uh, this rapid growth has led to many problems. We sometimes refer to this as over-urbanization. We have homelessness as, as the, uh, there are not enough homes uh, for people to live in. And of course, quite frankly, many of the people that come to the cities are unable to afford rents. They're unable to um, uh, 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 build homes, obviously, because there's a lack of space in many uh, places. Uh, and so we have uh, squatter settlements that have developed in the region, uh, pretty much on any open space that uh, people can find. Uh, so homelessness, poverty, congestion, water shortages, air pollution, and sewage disposal are huge problems. Uh, Delhi contains about 19 million people. Uh, there's really two landscapes to, to Delhi. There's Old Delhi which is the indigenous city and was actually the capital of the Mughal Empire for uh, 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 early in this region's history, and New Delhi, which actually became the capital of the uh, British Empire in the region. Uh, New Delhi is a, uh, is a planned city and it was developed in, uh, since 1911. However, uh, we see rapid growth and unregulated automobile and industrial emissions uh, has made Delhi one of the world's 10 most polluted cities. And the city also has uh, uh, put into place um, some 
regulations that has uh, caused some environmental progress uh, to be made. Calcutta, or Calcutta if you prefer, uh, is emblematic of, this, of the problems faced by the rapidly growing cities. Over 15 million residents in the city suffers from water and power shortages and a lack of adequate sewage treatment. Uh, considerable homelessness, uh, streets routinely flood during the rainy season, as I mentioned uh, before, and ethnic tensions are, uh, uh, abound. Uh, once again, you have to think about you know this very rapid rural to urban migration. Um, you know we have all different sorts of ethnicities coming into the place, people with different languages, uh, different religious beliefs, and so forth. Um, so this creates tension within the city because these people end up being concentrated in a very dense population, uh, concentrated very close together. Uh, it has a troubled economic base, and uh, because. Uh, while this city is an important industrial city for India, uh, its industry is actually declining uh, somewhat. It's actually becoming one of the Rust Belt cities of India. And the, over, uh, the overload uh, of its infrastructure, uh, of course, adds to problems. Uh, Dhaka uh, in Bangladesh is the capital city and the primate city of Bangladesh. It has experienced rapid growth from rural to urban migration as well has a population of about 13 million uh, people. It is the center of economic vitality for Bangladesh and is the global center for clothing, shoe, and sports equipment uh, uh, manufacturing. Now, you probably have read about uh, Dhaka and some of the problems with the, uh, uh, the uh, clothing manufacturing there, uh, the recent fires that have killed hundreds of people uh, as um, because of the unregulated, the uh, lack of labor regulations. In many cases, uh, people are working in factories that are several stories high. Uh, many cases, the people are forced to work very long hours. They're actually locked in the factory so that they can't leave. Uh, there's been many cases of suicide uh, uh, from the uh, working conditions in some of these factories. Um, and of course, uh, the factories are unregulated, and so there's been fires that, that, as I mentioned, have killed many hundreds of people. And so there's been a global push uh, for Bangladesh to improve its working conditions and its late labor regulations to protect workers. Uh, and many Western co uh, companies, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least publicly, uh, voice support for these um, labor regulations, but in reality, uh, very, very often don't do enough to encourage their suppliers who are making their clothing to actually put into place uh, better working conditions for the workers. So let me just give you an example. You know, uh, some of the large Western companies like Gap and Walmart and other firms uh, subcontract out the manufacturing of their clothing and things like that to uh, to either uh, Chinese or uh, uh, Indian uh, subcontractors who actually locate their factories in Bangladesh because it's much cheaper to manufacture there. Um, and uh, uh, the um, Walmart and the Gap and Nike, Nikes of the world really don't press their, uh, their subcontractors to improve the working conditions because obviously they fear that if they improve the working conditions, that's going to raise labor costs, which then will raise the prices of their uh, other products. And uh, quite frankly, I don't think any of us would uh, mind paying, a, you know, a few extra cents or maybe a, a few extra dollars for clothing uh, if we can prevent these uh, tragic incidents that we see in Bangladesh and other countries of the world uh, where the workers are uh, treated so poorly. Uh, Karachi is also a rapidly growing port city of about 18 million people in Pakistan. It's the country's largest urban area and commercial core. It was the former, former capital of the region until the planned construction of Islamabad in 1963. It too suffers from political and ethnic tensions in the region, once again, because of the large number of uh, migrants moving into the city. Islamabad, uh, as I mentioned before, is a planned city. It was developed in 1963 as the capital of Pakistan. The city is considered a forward capital because it signals both symbolically 
and geographically the intentions of the country to support its claims to the disputed uh, territory of Kashmir that's controlled by uh, India. And we'll talk more about um, the forward capital and the, uh, uh, the dispute between um, India and Pakistan over Kashmir and Jammu when we talk about the political geography of the region. Uh, so, uh, we've already talked about some of the problems in the urban landscape as problems due to the rapid growth, the political and ethnic tension uh, in the region, and we've also talked about the forward capital of Islamabad. Uh, and you can see Dhaka uh, here. This is a, a vibrant metropolis with both slums and prosperous areas. And the same is true with many of the cities, uh, particularly Mumbai, um, Delhi, uh, even Calcutta has uh, prosperous areas, but also have massive slums as well. Uh, this is the uh, urban landscape of Mumbai. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, Mumbai is the financial center for India. It's rapidly growing. Uh, it has congestion and very high rents despite the poverty in the region. It also has, ma has massive slums. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll point out uh, Dharavi, right in this area here, was a slum that actually developed on the outskirts of Mumbai, uh, but now is actually, as the, city, as the city continued to grow in population and to also grow geographically and, and spatially, the slum has, actually, be, has uh, actually become subsumed by the city. And so this area, the Dharavi slum, which has over a million residents, uh, actually has found itself to be on very valuable land. And there's been a lot of uh, movements by the government to try to get the people of Dharavi to leave this area so that they can sell this land to uh, speculators and to uh, developers and so forth to actually develop this area. Um, so uh, obviously Mumbai is the financial center, as I mentioned. It's also uh, the center for uh, uh, movie making. So many of you probably heard of Bollywood. Uh, that's Mumbai. Uh, so Bollywood movies are uh, filmed. Uh, many of them are filmed uh, in uh, Mumbai. Uh, so it's also a center for filmmaking as well as financial center. And many of those movies are actually um, exported around the world. Uh, many uh, people around the world actually enjoy Bollywood movies. And they come to the United States. You, maybe some of you have seen movies that have been made uh, in uh, Bollywood. Uh, they're actually quite interesting. I find them to be quite interesting in a, in a lot of respects. So let's talk about the cultural coherence and diversity of this uh, region. Um, Historically, South Asia forms a well-defined cultural region. Uh, the arrival of Islam added new religious dimension uh, to the region. And since the mid-20th century, religious and political strife have increased. Since the 1980s, there's been a, a growth in Hindu fundamentalism, uh, particularly in India. Or, uh, and this is also sometimes referred to as Hindu nationalism. And the, uh, Hindu nationalism is the promotion of religious values of Hinduism as an essential fabric of the Indian society. We also see a rising uh, Islamic fundamentalism in Pakistan as well. So uh, taking a look at the uh, origins of South Asian civilization, uh, the culture extends um, to the Indus River Valley uh, more than 4,000 years ago. Newer settlements around 800 AD uh, in, occurred in the middle of the Ganges River Valley as well. So uh, let's uh, first take a look at the Hindu civilization. Hindu, Hinduism uh, uh, is a faith that incorporates diverse forms of worship. It actually lacks a standard system of beliefs. All Hindus share a common set of epic stories, if you want to think of it in that sense. Sanskrit is the sacred language of Hinduism. Uh, the, hallmark of the, is, the hallmark is the belief in the transmigration of souls from being to being through reincarnation. Nature of one's acts in the physical world influences the course of future lives. Uh, so um, good acts in your life today will means, means that when you're reincarnated into the next life, 
you will advance uh, in this reincarnation process. Uh, Hinduism has a caste system. It's the strict division of society into uh, different hierarchical ranks of uh, heredity groups. So, um, uh, you know, good acts in today's life means that you will re be reincarnated into a better life in your, in your next life. Buddhism, on the other hand, uh, was founded uh, by Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, uh, who was a prince that was born in 563 BC. He rejected a life of wealth and power that he would have uh, experienced under Hinduism and sought a path of enlightenment with the cosmos. He argued that this path to nirvana was open to all, thus the rejection of the caste system uh, in Buddhism. His followers established Buddhism as a new religion. In later centuries, Buddhism diffused throughout East, Southeast Asia and Central Asia. Buddhism, however, never replaced Hinduism in South Asia, and it uh, is not really widely practiced in this region. It's widely practiced in Sri Lanka and throughout the, Hindu, uh, throughout the Himalayas, but not really uh, in India where it's had its foundations, or obviously in Pakistan either. So the arrival of, uh, the arrival of Islam. Islam is, uh, had a significant advances with the Turkish-speaking Muslims around the year 1000. Uh, by 1300, most of South Asia controlled, uh, was controlled by uh, Muslims. But Hindu kingdoms still persisted in, the southern, in southern India. During the 16th and 17th centuries, the Mughal Empire domin dominated much of the region. And we'll take a closer look at the Mughal Empire when we take a look at the geopolitics of this region. Uh, Hindus uh, from lower castes especially were especially attracted to Islam and uh, converted. Although very different, both Hindu and Islam coexisted peacefully until the 20th century. Uh, so you can see this is some of the uh, tension that we uh, see throughout the region with Hindu, Hindu, uh, Hindu nationalism as well as Islamic fundamentalism uh, with the destruction of a mosque, uh, this uh, Iota Mosque, as you can see here, as the two groups uh, have a conflict with one another. So the caste system, uh, let's take a look at the caste system. Um, well, actually, let's take a look at this um, uh, 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 map first. So we've ta uh, we, uh, talked about Hinduism. I've already discussed Hinduism, Sanskrit. We've already talked about Buddhism and Islam and the Mughal uh, Empire. So um, as you can see, this is the Hindu Indus River Valley civilization that we talked about uh, that formed uh, about 4,000 years ago. Uh, Four to 5,000 years ago in the Indus River Valley. Then this is the Ganges River, uh, the Ganges uh, Valley Cultural Core around 800 BC. And then the uh, Muslim Empire that we talked about, uh, the Mughal Empire that we talked about. And you can see it expanded uh, southward and controlled much of the uh, uh, Indian subcontinent, uh, and particularly uh, the uh, peninsula area of this region, never really expanding too much into the mountainous areas. Okay, so this is the, the Mughal Empire here. And like I said, we'll talk more about the significance of the Mughal Empire uh, when we uh, talk about the geopolitical situation in this region. So uh, let's move on to talk a bit about the caste system because it really is kind of important understanding the social and cultural order in the region. Uh, although it's been a unifying feature of South Asia, the system uh, is not uniformly distributed. In modern Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, the role of the caste system certainly has been fading, uh, mainly with, the, uh, uh, with, the, uh, with Islam coming into those areas. In Buddhist areas, the influence is very minimal. So the Buddhist areas in the Himalaya areas in Sri Lanka, uh, the, the, it's very minimal. In India, the caste system has, uh, has been de-emphasized, uh, but continues to structure day-to-day -day lives. Uh, 
caste is actually a term. It's actually a term of Portuguese origin, and it combines combines two distinct local concepts, which are varna, uh, which is the ancient four, fourfold social hierarchy of the Hindu world, and jati, which uh, which is the hundreds of local uh, groups that exist at each varna level, or in other words, the subcaste, if you if you wish. Uh, the main caste groups, there's three main groups that constitute, constitute the traditional elite. First, we have the Brahmins, which are the, traditionally the priestly class, uh, tra traditional priestly class, uh, and the traditional intellectual elite uh, in the caste system. Um, then we have the warrior class, which are the uh, Kashtarayas, uh, and they usually rule the old Hindu kingdoms. Then we have uh, the Vasiai, which are the traditional merchant class. Uh, and I'm very sorry about my about my pronunciation of these. Uh, I'm sure that uh, my pronunciation pronunciation is very poor. The fourth uh, category are the Sudras. Uh, they are composed of largely of a large array of subcasts, originally reflecting occupational groups. So each occupational group had its own uh, caste, uh, for example. Then we have the Dalits, which were formerly known as the, uh, as the untouchables. The uh, Dalits, uh, this is the group that stands outside the Varna system. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the untouchables. These are low-class positions derived from unclean occupation, um, such as leather workers, scavengers, latrine cleaners, swine herders, uh, many Indian Dalits converted to Islam, obviously, because of their poor treatment under Hinduism. Uh, they also converted to Christianity and Buddhism. Uh, however, the, uh, the, the discrimination continues. Um, the changing caste system. Uh, system the system is in a state of flux. Um, the concept of untouchability, for example, is technically illegal in India, but obviously it's uh, been very difficult. Uh, to either enforce or actually to change the view of the people about this. Um, let's talk about the contemporary religion in the region. Uh, as you can see, obviously Hinduism is dom dominant in, uh, uh, in India. Um, and actually, um, Hindu or Hinduism is considered to be an ethnic religion. So you will find probably 95% of all the world's Hindus or people who practice Hinduism in India. It doesn't really proselytize or try to get uh, converts. Um, so uh, you'll find Hinduism in other parts of the world as Hindus have uh, migrated to other parts of the world. So this is the area of Hinduism. Islam, as you can see, is largely found in Pakistan, okay, as well as in Bangladesh. And then you can see there's some mixture of Hinduism and um, uh, Islam in some of these areas as well. Sikhism uh, is found mostly in um, um, Sikhism, which is really kind of a combination between uh, Islam and Hinduism, is found mostly in the Punjab area up in here. And as a matter of fact, um, the We'll talk more about this when we talk about the political geography. Sikhs would actually like to separate from uh, India and form their own country. And we'll talk more about that as we move in. Uh, the, the name of the country would be Khalistan, uh, and they want to move away from here. Uh, and this has also been an area of, um, uh, of conflict between uh, uh, those who practice Islam and uh, uh, Sikhism up in this area. We also have Buddhism and Jainism, and as you can see, Buddhism, the purple colors mostly in the uh, mountainous areas, in the Himalaya areas, for example, in the region, and also uh, down in Sri Lanka. And then Jainism, uh, which is a very interesting religion, is largely found uh, down in this area, down in here, in combination with Hinduism as well. And then we have some tribal religions, uh, uh, particularly up in the very high elevations of the Himalaya mountains. So let's take a quick look at some of these um, religions. As I mentioned, Hinduism 
is uh, found mainly in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Uh, Islam is a minority religion uh, in the region as a whole. However, there are large numbers of, Hin of Muslims in, uh, in India, even though it's a minority religion uh, in the area. Uh, uh, so the overwhelming numbers of uh, Muslims are found in Bangladesh and Pakistan and India, most concentrated in four areas, the India in India cities, uh, in Kashmir, in upper and central Ganji, in the upper and central Ganges Plain, and in the southwestern state of Kerala, which is uh, down in this area. As you can see, there's some green down in this area. Buddhism and Jainism. Buddhism is prevalent in Sri Lanka. The Himalayas, Jainism or, uh, originated around 500 BC as a protest against uh, Orthodox Hinduism. Uh, it's an extremely nonviolent religion, which is a nice thing. Uh, agriculture is, is forbidden for the fear of plowing might harm insects and things like that. Some Jains actually wear um, masks over their uh, nose and mouth to prevent the breathing in of the very small insects that we have in our air, microscopic insects and things like that. So they do not believe at all in killing any sort of living being. And so it's, uh, so it's a very nonviolent religion. And as I mentioned, it's found mostly over in this area. Um, so it's concentrated in northwestern India, as I mentioned, and also in the Gujarat province, province as well, which is over in the northwestern part as also. Other religions include Christianity and Judaism, uh, which is scattered throughout the region. So uh, not many uh, uh, Jews in the region, but most would be concentrated, obviously, in the large cities. So let's move along to take a look at the linguistic diversity of the region. And this uh, region is very uh, linguistically diverse. Uh, it's estimated that we could uh, see probably upwards of about a thousand different uh, languages in the religion. So uh, one of the things I uh, had mentioned uh, when we talked about the Dravidian languages, particularly when we were talking about, uh, um, I believe it was Central Asia, uh, is the, uh, where we found actually some uh, Dravidian languages spoken uh, was I was, uh, you know, uh, you're, you can be kind of surprised about that because most of the Dravidian languages are actually spoken in the very southern part of the Indian subcontinent, as you can see from this map. So we had this very distinct dividing line um, across India that divides the uh, Dravidian languages from the Indo-Aryan languages or the Indo-European languages. Okay, so... Uh, as I mentioned, this important dividing line between north and south, the northward, northern, northward are the Indo-European languages, southward are the Dravidian languages, and the Dravidian languages are actually a family unique to South Asia. Um, there, uh, we also have some scattered Austroasiatic languages throughout the area. So Indo-European languages include Iranian languages such as Baluchi and Pashtun are found in western Pakistan, as you can see over in this area, okay? Uh, and then we also have um, Indo-Aryan languages uh, are closely related. So Hindi is the most widely spoken language in South Asia with Bengali second, uh, the second most uh, uh, spoken language. And Urdu is actually the official language of Pakistan. So we would find uh, a lot of people speaking Urdu in Pakistan as well. Um, then we have uh, the languages of the South, where we have the four main Dravidian languages, which each of which is associated with an Indian state. So we have Kannada, which is associated with uh, with uh, the Kannada languages, which is associated with Karnataka, the Karnataka state, which is right in this area. Uh, we have uh, Malayalam. Uh, in Kerala state, which is uh, right in this area. And then we also have uh, Telugu and Andhra, uh, Padrish, uh, Andhra Pradesh, which is right in this area. And then we also have Tamil and Tamil Nadu. 
Uh, so Tamil is in this area right in here. And then we have Sinhalese as a dominant language in Sri Lanka. Okay, so the Sinhalese Tamil right down in, uh, also down in this area. And Sinhalese down in here as well. Um, uh, and uh, Devahi is a Sinhalese dialect, which is the national language of the Maldives. Okay. So the linguistic dilemmas, uh, these are multilingual uh, countries in uh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and India, and they're marked by uh, linguistic conflicts. Indians, nationalists, want the national language, um, want a national language, and the Indian government actually recognizes 23 official languages, including English. Um, the role of English, English is widespread in becoming an associate official language uh, in many of the countries. English is uh, the medium, uh, is the uh, language that's becoming more and more used in school because so many people can understand English, and especially in the universities. Um, so English is widespread and it's been brought into the region, obviously, by the British when they colonized this area. So that is uh, uh, what I have on the, uh, um, actually, now I wanted to take a look at the uh, uh, South Asia's in the global context, and I actually want to take a closer look at the migration patterns in this region. And as you can see, we have what's often referred to as the Indian diaspora, but not only the Indian diaspora, we have uh, people leaving this region to, uh, from Pakistan and so forth to go to other uh, other parts of the world. So the Indian diaspora, we have uh, many Indians. Uh, one of the main migration routes, our main flows of migration, is uh, to the UK, uh, largely as a result of the connection during the colonial period between uh, the UK and this region. But also, we have a pretty substantial migration flow uh, from India and this region uh, to the United States as well. Uh, and especially to some of the major cities in the United States. As I'm sure most of you who live here are well aware of. New York City, for example. Uh, Toronto has a large uh, uh, population of South Asians, as does Chicago. And of course, San Francisco and Los Angeles would also have large uh, population concentrations as well. Um, so, um, uh, and mainly because of the widespread use of English has really helped to facilitate this uh, global culture and this global uh, migration flow. South Asian culture is diffused outward, and the diffusion of South Asian culture uh, has obviously been fac facilitated by this South Asian diaspora. Uh, problems. Uh, the globalization has cultures brought tensions. Traditional Muslim and Hindu religious customs are very conservative and disapprove of the outward display of sexuality. And this has created a real problem with uh, the infusion of Western culture into this region, particularly in, into cities such as Mumbai, the larger cities in this region, as they attract more and more Westerners uh, that come into the region to work in the transnational corporation uh, branch offices and so forth in this region. Uh, and another uh, significant flow that I wanted to point out here is from Pakistan. So Pakistan to the Arabian Peninsula, particularly to work in the oil fields, as I mentioned when we had taken a look at that region of the world. So we have a lot of um, Asian or uh, Pakistani migrants. We also have a, a number of uh, Bangladeshi, Bangladeshi migrants uh, going into uh, the Arabian Peninsula to work in the oil fields and so forth. And you can also see we have uh, a flow of Asian, or I'm sorry, Pakistani migrants moving from Pakistan into the southern part, uh, Kerala province, which is actually uh, one of the uh, wealthier provinces in uh, India. And also, if you remember, this also has a large Muslim population in the region. And also, uh, 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 migrants from Pakistan moving into Bangladesh as well. Okay, so that's what I wanted to point out with the uh, global uh, this uh, region's uh, culture in the global context. So I mentioned a widespread use of English, and that's also helped in the, uh, and obviously for India to attract the uh, 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 call centers 
because obviously when we call from the United States, we want to speak to people who speak English and are relatively well educated. And that's really an advantage that India has. Uh, it has uh, a, a, a population that uh, speaks English and also is relatively well educated. So they were able to attract a large number of these call centers. Uh, we've talked about the global spread of South Asian culture, particularly with Bollywood movies and things like that. Uh, the migration from South Asia to the developed world as people seek opportunities um, and also because to seek educational opportunities and obviously employment opportunities. So we have many people who come from India and this region to go to the UK to study, uh, you know, with the intent to eventually going back. But many people end up staying in the country. Same, similar situation uh, to the United States. People come to the United States to go to college. Uh, but also we have many professionals who come to the United States, such as doctors and dentists and so forth, that come to the United States and end up uh, staying here for long periods of time as they establish their uh, inventions. And so these are some of the cultural tensions that you might see in the region. I believe this is Richard Gere who gave a Hollywood star, a Bollywood star, a kiss during during a uh, an award ceremony, and he was actually, uh, you know, the uh, the very conservative people actually wanted him to be uh, banned from ever coming back to India because of this kiss. And you can see it's just a kiss on the cheek. It's not like he was kissing her on the lips or anything like that. You know, that people would might think would be controversial. So a very innocent kiss that uh, created a lot of controversy back in the early 2000s. Okay, so that's uh, my lecture on the population and cultural geography of the region. Very complex uh, culturally uh, and very interesting demographic trends uh, occurring in this region. So when we come back for the third lecture on uh, South Asia. We'll be taking a look at the geopolitical framework, the uh, political geography of the region, uh, which in and of itself is extremely complex, as well as the economic geography of the region.